Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from The Athletic, Stuart Mandel. We are taping Sunday morning after what was one of the best college football Saturdays I can remember, not just this year, but in a long, long time. Uh, So many great games from top to bottom. The headliner was what went on in Knoxville, Stu, where Alabama, which had been on the ropes a couple times this year and by opponents we did not think could put them on the ropes. This time they went down in Knoxville by the, by the Vols. Were you shocked? Were you surprised? Or were you just merely enthralled? Enthralled would be the right word. I mean, I'm going to go old school here, but that, you know, selective memory, but that might be the most exciting regular season game I've seen since Bush Push. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. I know there was the kick six in there and whatnot, but in terms of start to finish uh, and everything that went into it, if Tennessee had beaten them, you know, 10 to seven, it would still be just, you know, as cathartic when you've waited that long to beat your rival. But the fashion, the, the nature of the game, I mean, this was an elite quarterback duel. And of course, we didn't even know Bryce Young if he was going to play for sure. Not only does he play, but I would venture to say I think that was his most impressive performance of his career so far. And he just consistently wowed me in that game with his ability. It was almost Manziel-esque, his ability to escape and extend plays. And he lost. And it's just for Alabama to give up 52 points, which, by the way, they hadn't was the most points they'd given up in a game since 1907. You said, am I shocked? I'm not shocked that they lost. I'm shocked that they gave up 52 points. You don't see, you don't often see teams. And by the way, the defense, I think, came in ranked number one or two in the country. And Tennessee and Hendon Hooker did whatever they wanted. Jalen Hyatt running wide open behind defensive backs. And of course, Alabama committing 17 penalties. I feel like that we've, this is the second time we've said this this season. I've said it after the Texas game, too. Not very Saban-esque. No, gave up a lot of big plays. Look, as we said, this is the third game where they looked like the Texas game. I felt like they they probably should have lost. There were a couple of big calls that went their way, despite all the other calls that were flagged on them. Um, Texas A&M, they did not look well at all. But you can say that was no Bryce Young and Milrow turned the ball over. And this point, they were just reeling. They just did not look like they had a lot of answers for Hendon Hooker and that offense. Um, Jalen Hyatt was, it's hard to say he was the biggest star of the weekend when Hendon Hooker did what he did, but Jalen Hyatt, five touchdown catches. You just don't ever remember seeing a guy like that 
have that big of a of a game as a receiver where I don't want to say he's come out of nowhere, but Cedric Tillman, by the way, he's the big star receiver and he's missed the last three games. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought, you know, it was a it was an amazing day in Knoxville. Look, that fan base has been through a lot of sludge for the last, I don't know, 14, 15 years, dating back to the end of the Fulmer era, to Lane breaking their heart, to the disaster of Derek Dooley all the way through, you know, whatever happened, you know, under Jeremy Pruitt. And, you know, right here, I would say, look, when they hired, when Tennessee hired uh, Josh Heupel, I was like, oh, maybe this is the best they can do. But you had a program that was dealing with, all, you know, publicly, they, the, the chancellor had, had talked about the NCAA scandal and, and level one violations on all this stuff. And people around UCF didn't seem like they were that heartbroken to see Josh Heupel go. They weren't. But he has really lit a spark there. He's pushed a lot of the right buttons, getting Hendon Hooker. Um, by the way, like, you know, think about this. He left Virginia Tech, where they are horrific and on offense and just horrific in general at this point, and goes to Tennessee. And, I mean, God, they named a street after, after Peyton Manning. <laughs> they should be looking at street signs for Hendon Hooker, given where he's elevated that program. And it's not like Hendon Hooker played anywhere near this level at Virginia Tech. Like, he was a starter. He was okay. What a difference a coach and a system makes. You're right. Like, I'm looking back. You know, obviously, Heupel took over for Scott Frost and had another undefeated regular season. And even then, I think there was a feeling of, like, well, that was Scott Frost's players, right? It was Mackenzie Milton. He goes 10-3 and the next year, and then... Uh, six and four in the COVID season. So people weren't, and then of course, Tennessee, the circumstances there where they fired Pruitt pretty late in the cycle and, and they fired their AD. And so Danny White comes in and I think it was like two days later, he brings his coach with him. No, people were not like jumping up and down saying great job, Tennessee. Um, He has, I mean, they're, they're nationally, they're in the mix. They're in the college, college football playoff race. Um, Hendon Hooker, I have to think, is considered the Heisman frontrunner right now. He should be. I mean, he was number one on my ballot last week that we do for The Athletic. He was easily my number one guy uh, this morning when I turned it in. Yeah, now here's the here's the interesting wrinkle to that, though. If you told me which quarterback was more outstanding on Saturday, I would actually say Bryce Young. Just because he... I mean, there were just so many unbelievable plays where he should have been sacked or how did he even see that receiver open? Whereas, you know, I'm not taking anything away from hooker. He was great, but he was often throwing to wide open receivers, but I'm not going to vault the quarterback who lost over the quarterback who won, especially given the way they won where he had to, um, where hooker had to get them down the field to set up that winning field goal. Pretty astounding, poor late game management by, Nick Saban and Bill O'Brien. I mean, how do you lose a game where you had the ball at the 33-yard line with 30 seconds left and a fresh set of downs? How are you not running the ball three times and setting up your field? Maybe he would have missed like he did, but he wouldn't be kicking a 50-yard field goal. I can't – that's, you know, it's one of many, many subplots of that game, but that was pretty puzzling. Yeah, I just thought it was. I don't know. I feel like this is not the. This is one of many moments where I'm sure 
Alabama fans were very frustrated with their offensive coordinator, right? At one point, it just felt like uh, this would be a great two-on-two matchup between Jalen Hyatt and Hendon Hooker versus Jamar Gibbs and Bryce mm-hmm. Young. And, I mean, look, the only thing I would say towards propping up Hendon Hooker even further is Tennessee's defense does not have Will Anderson or Dallas Turner. Um, as you said, that this was a highly, you know, they've got experienced guys in the secondary, and those guys were just were overmatched by some things that Tennessee was doing. So, you know, I thought that was an um, that was that was about as entertaining a start to finish game. And I think you had the drama built in of, hey, we've seen Alabama escape these. And there was a moment where I thought, okay, Alabama's actually may even cover here because they were up a touchdown. Um, and then there was the penalty where where the interception gets nullified, right? Um, I mean, the hooker, you know, there was the botched uh, handoff where Alabama's able to just run it in and, and go yeah. up a touchdown. And you're like, How? then they still lost. I mean, all credit to Tennessee, such resilience. And like, how many times do you see a program like that just in, in poor NC state is a great example of this. Like they get their hopes just when they get their hopes up, it gets squashed. They did it. They beat Alabama. I thought David oven wrote a phenomenal story for us um, where he followed the, the fans who, who, who took down the goalposts and were taken out of the stadium. His whole story is about that. Um, the cigar smoke, the fact they played Dixieland delight. Um, if you don't know, Dixieland delight is a tr- Alabama home game tradition. I think they play it between the third and fourth quarters um, by the band Alabama, though it does specifically mention Tennessee in the song. That's that came on while Hypel was doing his postgame TV interview. I was like, oh, my goodness, they went there. So everything you love about college football wrapped up in that game. And oh, by the way, at the same time, TCU and Oklahoma State on two undefeated teams also went to overtime. <clears throat> TCU pulling a big comeback to win that game, um, I'm, you know, the, those big 12 predictions I made that everybody mocked, turns out it wasn't the Oklahoma part I got wrong. The two teams I had tied for last were Texas and TCU. And here we are, yeah. TCU, 6-0, and first place in the conference, Sonny Dykes getting it done. Uh, you know, I still don't exactly know how that's going to turn out, that conference. But you and I both said last week we think Oklahoma State's the best team. Oklahoma State should have won that game. They blew it. All but this is the kind of game that Oklahoma State – I feel like there's been games where Oklahoma State has, has found a way to win games like this where the other team like eh, Iowa State or whoever it was should have beat them, you think, and then Oklahoma State you know, often finds a way to win this one. This was not that case, obviously. Um, Quentin Johnston, who was one of our freaks guys – has been a dominant factor in Sonny Dyke's team, just especially in the last couple of weeks. He's been kind of unstoppable. And, you know, I don't know, like, Max Duggan has been somebody who, there's been a handful of quarterbacks, Hendon Hooker certainly in that, where I don't want to say they've come out of nowhere because they're people we know, we've known about for a long time, but it just seems like everything has started to fall into place um later in their career after some of these guys you know and hooker obviously transferred max duggan stayed but where there are guys who are like okay this guy has is either finally healthy or finally in a system that's really ideal for him and just just thriving and it's been fun to see back to alabama tennessee for a second um 
Are you so like you said, there have now been three games that Alabama could have or should have lost this year. Are you of the opinion that this team is just uh, on the on the brink? Like, which is more, which would be more likely to you? Alabama turns around, wins out, gets back into the SEC championship game, or Alabama loses another regular season game and doesn't even make the SEC title game? Good question. Um, I'm not, you know, I feel like they've been underwhelming at times, you know, obviously before this game, but I I just think that you still have arguably the best quarterback in the country, you have the best defensive player in the country. You have a game-changing running back. You're very average at receiver, at least by Alabama standards. Um, And I, I don't feel like the secondary has played that well you know, this year, like there's a, there's a bunch of guys who have experience, but I feel like it's been very inconsistent, right? Like Texas lit them up at times and almost, you know, couldn't take advantage of some things that were there. Right. And you're just kind of watching them going, this doesn't really feel like, you know, and look, we've seen Alabama defenses have been kind of like this. Having said all that, as long as Bryce Young is healthy, I still pick them. Look, I don't think that division I mean, I don't know when the last time you could say that it feels like there's two teams in the SEC East that are better than the, you know, the number two team in the SEC West. Like Ole Miss is undefeated um, and they're a top 10 team. I'm not sold that they're like, I'm not buying them yet. I just feel like we need to see a lot more. I watched them against the Auburn Auburn's, you know, kind of reeling. It was a good, uh, onside kick call by Lane to kind of turn the momentum. And I felt like that was a dagger for, you know, kind of a reeling Auburn team. But I'm, I still, uh, if you ask me who's coming out of the West, I'm still feel pretty confident that it's going to be Alabama. We, we learned, well, one thing we certainly learned in the last two weeks is where would Alabama, if Bryce Young had suffered a serious injury, not one that only cost him one game, where would Alabama be? I mean, he is, carrying that team um, probably more so than I mean, look he is the, the fourth in a row right of J- from Jalen Hurts to Tua to Mac Jones to Bryce Young I feel like Bryce Young is working with the least around him and still doing his thing but I'm with you I'm still picking them to go to Atlanta I wouldn't I would say though that I'm higher on Ole Miss than you are um, Ole Miss is seven and oh and, you know, one thing I'll give Lane Kiffin a lot of credit for is he, you know, some coaches like we're going to run our offense and this is the offense, regardless of who the personnel is in a given year. He will adjust to whatever his strength is. Last year or last two years, the strength was Matt Corral and those receivers. This year, the strength is those running backs. Um, they ran for 400 something yards against Auburn yesterday. They've got, uh, well, they've got a, a great tandem, right? And plus Jackson Dark can run. So that being said, you know, if they, when they face Alabama and it's at the, it's at, uh, it's in Oxford, is it the right, I don't know that it's the, like, I think they're very good. I don't know if it's quite the right matchup. Like you said, to take advantage of that secondary because the strength is their running game and Alabama is pretty good against the run. I would make the case to, that the second best team they may have played this year of they've played seven games, the second best team after 
Kentucky that they played might be Troy. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like that's ouch to Auburn right there. Troy's pretty good, but I mean, Troy's a good you know group of group of five team in John Summerall's first season there. They're pretty good, but it's like Tulsa, no Georgia Tech, no Central Arkansas, no. They they um, you know played Vandy at Vandy and then Auburn, which Auburn definitely has talent, but I feel like Auburn's still kind of reeling. So I that's why yeah. I'm a little hesitant to go like how well does how well you know does their quarterback take care of the ball in a big game? Like I feel like I need to see more before I like of all the teams that are in the top ten right now, they've my, proven the least. They have proven the least. Yeah, you wouldn't it's think not- it's possible for an SEC team to start seven and zero, and you look at the schedule and go, "Eh, who do they really beat?" They end though with so the next five games are at LSU, at Texas A&M, then they have an off week and they play Alabama. That'll be the big one. At Arkansas, Mississippi State. It would not surprise me if they finish nine and three, um, ten and two, probably more likely. But you know if they. You know, LSU, I mean, I don't know what you know, LSU looked um, great uh, yesterday. There have been other times when they haven't looked so great. Jaden Daniels had probably his best game uh, so far against Florida. Like, which version are you getting next week in Baton Rouge? Um, that's to me, that's a, kind of a toss up game. Yeah. I mean, again, they, they've had, they had another special teams glitch. I feel like <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it is. And, but Jaden Daniels has been a terrific addition. You, what you saw yesterday was Kayshawn Butte looked like what the guy we were expecting going into the year. And Josh Williams, former walk-on running back, who's been a, a solid contributor there, really stepped up. And I think that was good. And they still have guys on the, you know, in the front seven who can get after you on defense. And we saw, you know, some some of that stuff. Um, you know, I just feel like, and maybe Ole Miss isn't this. Maybe Ole Miss is a ten-win caliber team, but I feel like on the other side you have teams that are seven-win teams in the in the West. Not Auburn, but I feel like Texas A&M, you know, certainly Mississippi State um, and LSU all feel kind of around seven and five, eight and four-ish. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, so you were yet again at the Michigan game. I feel this like this probably the last time I see Michigan till they play Ohio State. Have you like do you do you have a like an apartment or an Airbnb in Ann Arbor at this point? We've only we, this was only our second trip to Ann Arbor. We've seen them four times in a row, twice on the road, twice there. Um, lots of Zingermans, though. It's hard to I mean. Oh my was, gosh, I'm jealous. Yeah. So um, what was really cool on Friday night? 
There's a top 10 hockey match it, it matchup in Yoast, which is this old barn that's a legendary building in ho college hockey circles. And they played BU. And so I was with the Big Noon crew and our friend Jenny Taft, former BU athlete, whose husband once played at BU and won the Hobie Baker, which for non-hockey fans, is that's the Heisman in, in college hockey. Um, so she has hockey roots. And it was cool because um, Jenny was out on the ice along with Leinert. And they had a little contest where I don't know if you've ever seen it where they'll do these NHL games in intermission as well, where they basically cover up the goal. And it's almost like a little bit of a like, enough space for maybe a puck and a half or two pucks to fit. And they lined them up from the blue line. Matt wasn't really close. Jenny made it on her first try. You know, it was and like Jenny's a badass. Play. I remember yeah. seeing a video of her playing Gus Johnson, but I does Matt Liner have any hockey experience? Like what was he doing out there? Um, he likes the Kings. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he was out there. <laughs> like they were, uh, they were basically, um, you know, I went with, with, uh, with Rob Stone and Brady and Reggie. And so it was a way to promote our show the next day and introduced, um, our crew at that point. And so that's what they did. And, but it was a, it was a fun atmosphere to be at just, you know, one thing I, I definitely appreciate being on the road with this crew is we've got to do some cool stuff on the Fridays. And that certainly was it. Uh, it was raw. It was cold. It was the first time I'd seen Penn State in person. And, you know, the, the, the issue basically came back to two things. One, Penn State's quarterback play was very underwhelming. We've heard this before. Sorry, John. The other thing was Michigan has a really, really explosive one-two punch in the run game. Blake Corum has been deserves to be in the Heisman talk. And then behind him, Don Donovan Edwards went off and had a career game and their offensive line is really good. And when you watch them go and, you know, in, uh, you know, see them up close, you really appreciate just how good they are. I, I mean, right now, I don't know. You know, I had some, somebody make this point to me who's a, a, a coach in the big 10. and was like, I don't know how good the big 10 really is right now. You know? So Ohio state, Hasn't played anybody. Their toughest game was against a Notre Dame team that just lost to a terrible Stanford team, right? And we'll get to them in a second. But, you know, you look at that side, um, it's, it's an interesting league just because you have Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan State has really fallen off. You know, Maryland feels a lot, pretty much one-dimensional. You have Rutgers and Indiana. Um, but Michigan, people there feel like Michigan's very good. You know, this. you look at their team, they are – you know, they are they are very physically impressive and they, they have some depth in some key places. I still think we need to see J.J. McCarthy. He has the better arm than Cade. We need to, you know, like they really haven't opened him up and said, all right, you're going to take shots downfield. That's the one thing you need to right now. Well, right now they don't. When you can just line up and, and run over people, which is what they did yesterday. At some point, they're going to need to be able to do that if they're going to be a national title contender. Uh, I think that so early, early in the broadcast, when they like, you know, show the, 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 who the starting lineup is, Joel Klatt says, I think this, you know, last year, Michigan's offensive line won the Joe Moore award. And I think this one might be even better. It's like, okay. And then absolutely. I mean, it was a clinic. Um, those two long runs back to back. Um, I forget which one was first. I think Donovan Edwards had the first one. And then Blake Corum just, gaping holes that they ran through. Um, I feel like we've, we've both known Manny Diaz a long time. 
I don't know what it is. He, I think in general, he's a pretty good defensive coordinator, but I feel like, I don't know why, I don't want to say once a year, but fairly often he, he, he will just have one of these games where they just get annihilated. Um, and that's what happened. I mean, it was just complete and utter domination. I don't think Penn state is that much worse than Michigan, but they sure look like it yesterday. I, I just thought what you saw was a team that was more physically mature than Penn State. You look at it, you know, Penn State has really talented young running backs. Michigan's guys are a little more seasoned. Michigan's offensive line, which Penn State's offensive line has improved. Michigan's offensive line is just two notches better. They were better on that side of the ball. You know, they have Mozzie Smith in the middle of the D-line. He is different than – than, P.J. Mustafer is a good player – you know, when you watch Mozzie Smith in person, you know, a bunch of times from field level, you're like, okay, I don't want to say he's Vita Vea because he doesn't have the same kind of length, but it just in terms of being a disruptive powerhouse in the middle of the line, he gives them a presence. And now you're seeing edge rushers that they had really emerge. There's not a, a singular Aiden Hutchinson guy, but they have some big athletic guys. I mean, the guy, the player who was formerly known as Yabi Anoma, who's a former five star guy, now he's Yabi Oki. Um, he came in late in the in camp and he has really emerged as a as a force. And they have a bunch of guys like that. They have speed in the secondary. And I think their staff has done a really good job. You know, I, I mean, I don't know how to you know how this process is for you. But like, I don't think Jim Harbaugh gets enough credit for what he does for the team in terms of development. I mean, they practice. They are physical at practice. They are they are going to grind. And I think you see the fruits of that now for this team. The question is, you know, I've heard he's, he knows that he's got to die, back it off a little as we're getting into the second half of the season. We'll see if they sustain that, you know, that, that was always interesting. You know, when I remember hearing this with like Les miles back in his days at LSU, where, you know, again, another Bo Schimbeckler guy, he would, they would grind and grind and grind. And then in November would come, and I remember Ogeron was big in the GPS, GPS data that he would get from, from Jack Marucci, who was their trainer, and they managed it better. And I think it'll be interesting to see with Michigan where, you know, they're grinding and grinding. How do these teams respond in the second half of the year when you get into November? Do your players have their legs? Do they respond? Because the other day, on Saturday, Michigan looked, looked really fast. So – Want, give a little more specifics from what you know, because that place is a fortress. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot now that teams are barely going live in practices during the season. That's part of the reason I think you see a lot of poor tackling. What is a what is a typical practice week like with Harbaugh? Well, what you what what I've heard a lot from what I've asked guys on his staff, what do they think makes him such a good coach? Because this has kind of always been kind of a kind of a curiosity for a lot of people i think in the sport one of the things you hear is just the way they practice and the physicality and in kind of what he's looking for um and i think that the balance is knowing that and then knowing where maybe we're not gonna wear guys down as we get later in the year i think the thing that often gets kind of overlooked you know for us in the media is sometimes we just we just think okay this guy was a four star. This guy was a five star. So when the game comes, he'll be great. Or, you know, they're playing a bunch of two stars, so they're not going to be ready or, you know, whatever it is. And I think it's no, it's, it's seldom really the case. It's really how do they prepare and what goes into it. And I think 
you, you just see that in terms of the attention to detail, why they're, why they're so good, either, you know, staying on blocks or getting off blocks, you know, like missing tackles or breaking tackles. I mean, you watch Blake Corum at field level. He's really, really impressive in terms of he knows, you know, he can bounce outside. He can make people miss. But like there's some big holes that he's finding and he's he's accelerating through it. And you just see like early on Penn State did a pretty good job with red zone defense it was like Ben, but don't break. And, a, and pretty, you know, like, I don't know if it was in the second quarter or in the second, got to the second half, then all of a sudden it just became, they were just breaking. And I think that was the, that was just the issue of like, it's hard to sustain that level against a team like Michigan for, for three and a half hours. So to, to what, so that big 10 coach that's it, or well, I don't, was it a big 10 coach or not big yeah, 10 coach? Big 10 coach. We said, I don't think the big 10 is very good. I'll take it one step further. The Big Ten beyond those two teams, and maybe I don't know, maybe two and a half teams, stinks. Look who Michigan's going to play from here. They're going to play Michigan State, who uh, did did get the win over Wisconsin this week, but has a losing record still. Then they're going to play Rutgers. Then they're going to play Nebraska. In the eleventh game, they will finally they will get to Illinois, who is six and one. And all credit to to Brett Bielema and that team. I don't know that I consider them to be much more than a low top 25 team. And then the Ohio state game uh, people, Ohio state fans get mad at me. Cause I keep saying, uh, I, I don't have CJ Stroud in my top three on my Heisman ballot right now. Cause I feel like he's, he's great, but he's basically been putting up big stats against bad teams. Um, like we're looking at a very real possibility where Michigan, Ohio state is two undefeated teams, which in most years would just be, the absolutely dominant storyline in the sport. And I feel like that's those teams are getting overshadowed right now by the Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee triumvirate. Yeah. I look, I think some of it is who they played. Some of it is that they've, they Alabama and Georgia, and Georgia especially have a seal of approval. They've won right. national titles recently. You know, Michigan, Michigan's, you know, won a big 10 title, but Michigan hasn't really won, you know, hasn't been a factor in the national race beyond last year in a long, long time. Ohio state has been good, but it's not like, you know, they won one national title under urban, you know, and that's one, I guess one in the last, what, 17 years or so when, you know, they obviously won one under trestle, but that was almost 20 years ago. So, right. And that's the whole conference, right? And that that's shows you how the climate of the sport has changed. Because in 2006, when they had that one versus two game, that was the that was the storyline of the entire season, even to the point of and this is BCS days, not 14 playoff. You know, if Michigan keeps it close, could they possibly play them again in the championship game? Um, you know, Urban Meyer kind of politics for Florida to even get into that game, and and then Florida crushed Ohio State, and that was the beginning of the sec's um status as the as the pr premier conference so i mean michigan maybe even better than last year's team but because last year's team went and got trucked by georgia in the semifinal there's going to be a bit of a i'll believe it when i see it um feeling out there right uh, but i will say i'm not you know i am not one of the people now at this point i did think it before the season that's like oh there's michigan had their fun against ohio state last year now do we go back to being nah -uh. Like right so as of this moment, around. I could. You have come as around. of this moment, I could see either team winning that. So you have come around in a big way because I felt like at one point you were like a seven and five Michigan feeler. 
I thought that they rose up last year and had a special season, but then they were losing guys like Aiden Hutchinson and they would take a step back and they, it's the opposite. I think they may actually be better. Um, they're just, the offense is, is, is noticeably better. So now you look at Ohio state. Yeah, that's exactly what we thought, right? CJ Stroud and those receivers, even without, um, Jackson Smith and Jigba for most of the season. And those two great running backs are, are putting up huge numbers against everybody. But again, these aren't good teams they're playing. So I, you know, last year, basically it was kind of that way, you know, Ohio state last year, they lose to Oregon. And then from there, they just got on a roll and their offense looked unstoppable. And then they got hit in the mouth by Michigan and, and you saw what happened. It's not, you know, the same thing could happen this year. I don't know. I'm not going there yet, but you know, I think, I think they're both really good. I think those two teams, I think if you were doing a 14 playoff right now, it'd be hard not to do two sec, two big 10. I don't think it's going to end up that way, but you know, if you're asking me who the four best teams are in the country right now, it would be uh, two of them would be Georgia and Tennessee and two of them would be Ohio state and Michigan. Hmm. Can we pivot to what I think was the second best game of the day? It was not Pac-12 after dark, but it was a Pac-12 game at night. USC goes to Utah. USC had looked unstoppable, and they really looked unstoppable in the first half. And Utah, to the credit of Cam Rising and that whole program, just kept battling and battling. And, you know, at one point it felt like they were going to get blown out, and then they – one point, Utah drives down, gets inside the five, and turns it over. You're like, man, you cannot afford that against a team. Yeah. It seems like you can't stop them. And yet, Utah ended up winning 43-42. It's, it doesn't shock me in this regard because I feel like I've been yelling into the wind about here on the West Coast that, yes, USC is much improved, but I still feel like there are going to be probably a couple of stumbles just because – they're very suspect on defense and that showed up. I mean, as much as USC did on offense with, with Caleb Williams, Utah actually uh, had even more yards of offense. Right. And it was just, you know, 562 yards of offense, 424 through the air, plus another um, 138 on the ground. I mean, it was, you know, the other thing that stood out was, uh, USC only had one TFL, no sacks. And I think that, yeah, that's, that's what happened. So you're right. Like their defense, we know their defense doesn't have the personnel, you know, that, that nearly the personnel they have on offense, but they, what they were, what they have been doing a good job of is creating, getting sacks and creating turnovers. Right. And that didn't happen last night. They created, they had one turnover. No, they had, second, they had a second, but it got taken back by a penalty that turned out to be a really big play. Makai Blackman had a pick in the end zone, yep. and then it, it ended up coming back. Well, the, the Pac-12 officiating display in that game is a whole other story. I mean, this was when you make when people make the mocking Pac-12 refs. This game was a was a was a, a total uh, uh, example of that. But I feel really I'm I'm happy for Cam Rising because you know that interception cost them the Florida game. Uh, he had an interception that turned the UCLA game, kind of swung it open last week. He throws for 415 yards and two touchdowns and runs for 60 yards and three touchdowns and basically outduels Caleb Williams, who threw for 381 yards and five touchdowns and lost. So Al Whittingham, by the way, going for two at the end there. Um, 
You knew he had to do it. The, yeah, if he doesn't get it, though, he'd get crushed, but he did it. No, if he doesn't get it, Stu, I think you're playing against a team that you can – I don't think you can get into an overtime shootout with USC if you're Utah. You have a chance. It wasn't like you were going to win the game for sure there, but I th- especially USC wasn't stopping Cam Rising. Like, I just thought on fourth and short, he's going to find a way to make a play. The issue is going to be, you know, USC is just going to be keep, keep taking shots, and I just didn't think they could slow him down. And – it was very fortunate for them. I, I don't know if this I don't know if this changes much of anything in terms of the Pac twelve, right? I mean Utah it really doesn't, other than Utah's saved its season is still in the mix, right? If they had lost, they would have two conference losses already. That would be hard to come back from. But like USC was gonna lose at some point, one point loss on the road to a good team in a in like that that's you know, people make fun of a lot of these Pac twelve schools, nobody shows up. Utah, they show up and they're loud. Um, so yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change. I mean, it just means Utah's still alive. And so because of that, okay, you had that big game last week. This week, you've got number nine UCLA going to number ten Oregon. Can I ask, let me let me stop you before you get to that? Yeah. The one thing I wonder about is you just mentioned, and it's a long season left, but you just mentioned two Big Ten teams and two. Two uh, SEC teams would be in your top four. That doesn't even mention Clemson or certainly TCU. If USC ends up beating UCLA, and may have to beat them twice, but if they end up 12-1 and one and lost to a Utah team that you know probably will have at least three losses, and they're going to play a Notre Dame team that's that's not going to matter. You know, they're, <laughs> they're irrelevant. Um, how, what, how big of a chance do you think the Pac-12 has? And I'm asking you, I guess, this is in the middle of October. Of how if it's a one loss Pac twelve chance. Yeah. I think a one I think based on precedent, based on eight years of committee precedent, that twelve and one uh Pac twelve champ is gonna get in over an SEC or Big Ten team that doesn't doesn't win its conference. Um you really believe that? I do, because of again eight years of precedent. The only time the only time a 12 and 1 conference champ has been left out was Ohio State the year they got trucked by Purdue and the committee specifically cited that bad Purdue loss. So if you're telling me USC turns around and goes 12 and 1 and the only loss is by 1 point on the road to Utah, yeah, that team's getting in. Michigan could lose at Ohio State, win the rest of the way, be 11 and 1, and Ohio State could be you know 12 and 0. Or 13 Mich- Michigan has to win that game, and here's why. They're non-conference schedule. There's the, that, the committee will hold that. They played three nobodies, and they did it by choice, by the way. They actually canceled a home-and-home with UCLA. Imagine if they had played them this year. The committee will hold that against them, especially because if Michigan doesn't beat Ohio State, how many top 25 teams are they going to have beaten by the end of the year? Maybe yeah, I two. Just, yeah, but if you're in the, in the USC case... You don't, I mean, you're going to get penalized, I think, for Notre Dame. Notre Dame may be a six and six team. Right. right but the way things are shaping up, good. for them to go 12 and one, they will have had to beat a ranked USC team, possibly ranked Oregon twice. Either no, they will either have beaten a, a, a ranked UCLA team twice or a ranked UCLA and a ranked Oregon, right, in the conference championship game. So, um, it, that's not the one that would concern me if I were the Pac 12. It's the SEC. And and you saw it, you know. You have three teams in play right now. Maybe four. Let's say Ole Miss, technically. 
I mean, the scenario that will that's right in front of you now, right, is okay. Tennessee plays Georgia first weekend in November. Probably a winner takes all for the SEC East. Okay, let's say Georgia wins, and then Tennessee wins out. Tennessee's eleven and one with a win over Alabama, and they're only lost to Georgia. I mean, that team's going to have a really good chance of getting in. All right. Uh, what else do we want to cover? Well, you've 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 um, referred to it in passing a couple times, but Notre Dame had a brutal loss yesterday. They had started to get things together after that rough start. They were a 17 and a half point favorite over a Stanford team that had lost 11 straight games to F- FBS opponents. And Stanford wins 16 to 14 in South Bend. And I feel like that was a bad, bad loss for Marcus Freeman. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I wouldn't, I still think, you know, it's year one, much like Brent Venables, uh, much like Dave Aranda two years ago. I don't think you can, you know, get off the bandwagon. You got to give a a first time head coach a chance, but no doubt that's a bad loss. We've talked about how abysmal Stanford football has been of late, you know, just especially at home to lose to them. Um, You know, what's going on? The offense was dreadful yesterday. Drew Pine had played pretty well as a backup coming in. Yesterday was not that way against a really, you know, struggling Stanford defense. I mean, if you're a Notre Dame fan, are you just saying, you know what? Looks like we're signing, putting together a good recruiting class. We got, we just landed a big, uh, highly rated running back yesterday on the same day we lost to Stanford. You say, okay, we're taking some growing pains with a new coach and a new coaching staff, and we're we're looking for better days ahead. Yeah, I don't think anybody's rushing to fire him. You know, it's his first season. I've talked many times, though, about first impressions. You know, it puts you in a bit of a hole as you get further into your tenure, right? And I think the interesting thing about this one in particular, that people are going to be asking questions about if, for instance, they end up going like five and seven or six and six this year is, did Jack Swarbrick panic when he promoted Marcus Freeman? Because, and this, you know, what amazes me about coaching searches these are decisions that are going to impact your program for years and years to come. And these ADs, you know, they'll, they'll make a hire in 48 hours uh, without thinking through the ramifications. Like I get it early signing day, but losing, you know, four star running back decommits because you took too long to hire a head coach uh, to me is insignificant compared to if you actually hire the wrong head coach. And so we all know if they had waited out Luke Fickle, Luke Fickle is probably the head coach of Notre Dame right now. Instead, they prioritize continuity, promote Freeman. He keeps Tommy Reese. I'm not sure how many Tommy Reese fans there are left at Notre Dame after that performance. Um, that question will will linger unless he you know comes out next year and is gangbusters. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We buried the number, what is Clemson, number five team in the country. Goes to Tallahassee and gets another good win. I mean, Clemson has just been rolling through their division, right? You know, oh, is is Wake Forest going to get them? No. Is NC State going to get them? No. Is FSU going to get them? No. Well, guess who's next? Syracuse Orange. The 6-0, 14th ranked Syracuse Orange. Syracuse has gotten Clemson when Clemson was really good. So are you going to, are you going to get on the plane and go to South Carolina for this one? That's about as Clemson, South Carolina is about as far a place to get to from here as any place in college football, maybe state college. So no, but you're right. The the interesting wrinkle is that Syracuse has been a bit of a thorn in the side of Dabo. Um, You know, they, they beat him in 2017. They all very nearly beat him. In 2018, in a year where Clemson dominated everybody else they played, um, I guess the better question is: Are you a, are you back on the Dino Babers bandwagon? I mean, this is pretty unusual in that he followed up the 10 win season with three straight losing seasons. A lot of schools would have cut bait. Syracuse stuck with him. Look at him now. I kind of am. They have a little bit of a of a. Uh... Three-headed monster, Garrett Trader, former Mississippi State quarterback, playing really well. Sean Tucker last year broke out. I mean, he was a big-time running back, went in there, and he's a problem. And Aronde Gadsden, the second, um, has been a difference maker for them. Like, they're Dino knows how to coach offense. You go back to his days at Eastern Illinois or certainly in the MAC. Um, the other thing we know he knows how to do is, is get his team fired up. So I give them a puncher's chance. I don't think – you know, I would definitely want to see this game to see how, because um, I I feel like Clemson's D line, which is you know at, at times has been banged up, but still really dominant at the same time. They have so much talent there. I think it presents a lot of problems, and I want to see how Clemson tries to navigate. I'm sorry, trap. Syracuse will try to navigate. We can talk about this one a little more in our next episode, but um, the ACC is at least on that side of the division is really, really interesting. It is. Um, I, I, Florida state is now, I don't know. Do we officially consider them a disappointment, but they, they have three losses now. Well, I'm a disappointment. I think you were higher on them than anybody outside of Tallahassee. Yeah. I mean, I thought coming off the LSU win, they could have a really special year, not special, but you know, much a better year than they've had in a long time, which they still can. They still can. They just keep shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, the Jordan Travis turnover swung that game. So, um, 
so I, I don't know. The other one is, I mean, poor NC State. Every this was their most the highest expectations they've had for a team in like 20 years. Devin Leary's out for the season now. They're probably gonna end up going like eight and four. Um it just it just I don't know. There's a curse around that program. But um I think Dave Clawson and the Wake Forest Demon Deacons are still though in the mix to have a really good season. And um UNC is six and one. And I don't actually think they're that good. Am I crazy? I feel like their defense is awful and they've had a couple very fortunate escapes. They they escaped against Duke last night. I don't want to pile on Mac Brown, but they're like a very they, they deceiving es- six and one. You know, they escaped at Miami, at you know, at App State. So it's not they've had three really close and they got trucked by Notre Dame, who's just not very good. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the rest of their schedule, by the way, Pitt, who's okay, Virginia, who's not very good, Wake, who is good, Georgia Tech, not not good, and NC State. Now, as you mentioned, Devin Leary out for the rest of the year. Um, that is a, you know, that is a, a very manageable. I mean, they could, I don't think it would take much for them to go 10 and 2 this year. I'm looking at the AP Top 25 that just came out, and I'm a little surprised. NC State is still ranked. They they dropped eight spots to number twenty three. They are still ranked. UNC entered it this week. Who is not ranked? LSU. I could see that. I mean, I think you're giving winning against Florida, which is not that good of a Florida team, a little too much credit. I mean, they got embarrassed by a good Tennessee team a couple weeks ago. They've lost to a four and three Florida State team. I'm not sure why. I think they're a fringe top twenty five team, but I actually picked them to win that game. I don't think going into the swamp for LSU is anything that was going to really have them reeling. Do you know that LSU, that there is a team from Louisiana ranked this week. That's not LSU. Tulane. Two, six and one Tulane with a good team that beat Kansas state. Am I crazy to think might be in the mix for that new year six bid? I mean, look who else is in there. It's there's not a deep pool right now. No Cincinnati's 21. They're probably still the team to beat. Coastal got knocked off by Ricky Grant for the U squad. I mean, you have James Madison who lost yesterday. Well, they weren't even eligible. Nobody in the Mountain West is particularly good. Like, it's probably going to be the AAC champ. And it's going to be Cincinnati, Tulane, maybe UCF. So, um, I got a lot. You want to do shout-outs? I got lots of shout-outs. Okay. You start out. We we can go back and forth on this. All right. Shout-out number one. The Colorado Buffs, who looked just completely like on the way to being one of the worst Power Five teams in the history of Power Five teams. They fire Carl Durrell. They promote Mike Sanford. They also just as significantly fired their D.C. And guess what? A team that had been giving up 40 points to everybody holds Cal to 13, wins 20 to 13. And over time, they rush the field in Boulder. Yeah, and that D.C. who took over Gerald Chapman, D-line guy, got promoted up. Good for him. That was a, uh, I mean, that's a good way to get people to know who you are and maybe, maybe yeah, for sure, be for somebody else after this season. So that is good for me. It is our buddy Brett Bielema at Illinois. Um, they beat Minnesota. They kind of mauled Minnesota. They have wins over Wisconsin and Iowa. That I don't. There was a stat I thought I saw on the broadcast for that. The last time they beat those three teams in the same year, I think Bielema was thirteen. <laughs> And that's a long time ago and a lot of drinks ago. So um, 
you know, he's, I think we were both excited that he was going back in the big 10 and in the big 10 West, he was going to give them an identity and you're sitting there and you're watching like Ryan Walters is DC. They were 104th in the country, I think on defense when he got there. And now they were number one in the country. They're six and one. I mean, as a son of an Illinois grad, uh, shout out to the Illini. Shout out to the Illini indeed. Um, okay, shout out number two. Do you remember I when Idaho basically got de- demoted themselves to FCS? Are you giving a shout out to Jason Eck? Is that what I happening? am giving a shout out to Jason Eck, who knocks off number three Montana to win a trophy that I did not know existed, the Little Brown Stein. Did you know about that one? Did know about that. Yes, you did. Yes, I mean, yes. First time since 1999. Random Jason Eck uh, reference here. I looked it up when this would have been. I think it was like 2010 when Twitter was still fairly novel. I did a story about Jason. I don't remember the other assistant coach's name, but the other assistant and Jason Eck had just been fired by Ball State, and they were you know they used Twitter to like basically say like, hey, I'm 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 available. I'm open for work. It was a very novel thing at the time. Lo and behold, Jason Eck has worked his way back up the ladder in a big way. Uh, head coach of the first year head coach of Idaho. Big win for them. Jason Eck. So he was the OC at he's a former Wisconsin a walk on. He was the OC at South Dakota State. That year they gave a good Minnesota team all they could handle. Um, my, my He's a guy I would have beers with at the convention every year. He's a really good coach. I think he will. Not saying Idaho, you're going to lose him soon, but he is a guy who will continue to rise. Um, kind of reminds me of like a big Jason Siegel, if you remember that actor. Yes, <laughs> but like he, he's just really, really sharp, and I'm not surprised he's gone in there and done well or done well fast. He's somebody that I think would have been a Power Five or could have been a Power Five OC, but he wanted to be a head coach. He has ties out there. And so he took this job, and I think he's going to be somebody you're going to hear a lot more about. Boy, I had completely – here's a piece of coaching trivia I had completely forgotten. So he was an assistant. At, he was an offensive line coach at Idaho 2004, 2005, 2006. And one of those years, he was the offensive line coach under head coach Nick Holt. Dennis. Yes, Nick Holt, but then Dennis Erickson. Do you remember? I had completely forgotten that Dennis Erickson went to Idaho for a year. The Nick Holt staff back then had a bunch of guys who were going to be like either NFL or college head coaches. They were really bad on the field. Like that was a dreadful Idaho Vandals team. But Jonathan Smith was there. Ryan Nielsen, who's the DC at the Saints, was there. Uh, it's a lot of guys who I think Nick Holt um, mentored. And the team wasn't very good, but the staff was very promising. Dennis Erickson's 2016 went four and eight and he got hired by Arizona state the next year. So um, anybody else? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, look, this was a, just a absolutely phenomenal college football Saturday. And again, the I keep harping on it, but the Alabama Tennessee game was about as good as it gets. So um, as always, second episode of the week will be mailbag heavy. As always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time.